This is Greg Harmon of Deceleration, Deceleration.news, an online journal speaking to our shared ecological, political, and cultural crises, seeking out the roots of human and planetary insecurity, a movement beyond resistance in pursuit of a sustainable peace. So this is part of a series of podcasts we're doing dedicated to San Antonio's climate action and adaptation plan, uh, a city effort to rapidly reduce our climate pollution while preparing our residents for rapidly escalating extreme weather being brought about by fossil fuel-driven human industry and agriculture. This week, we speak to structural engineer and green building leader Bruce King about the opportunities that climate change poses for cultural change as well as the potential of the building trades to play a leading role in cooling our overheating planet. Thanks for joining us. My guest this week is Bruce King, who has spent 40 years as a structural engineer working, uh, I guess, all over the world, specializing in alternative building uh, materials, founder and director of Ecological Building Network, and author many times over in the sustainable building field titles uh, such as Buildings of Earth and Straw, Making Better Concrete, Design of Stra- Straw Bale Buildings, and the most recent, The New Carbon Architecture, Building to Cool the Climate. Um Bruce King, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a there's a real struggle going on these days, and and I think for the, um, in the, within the environmental or, or or really across broader culture, uh, as we're faced with these colliding ecological crises, um, there's sort of a I'm I'm hearing in in new circles that I'm not used to a sort of fatalism, uh, a language of doom, that that uh, it's new at least not to all my contacts but to but certainly to some kind of more mainstream voices do you feel first of all that that doom or that is warranted uh well yes and no um i, I think it's widely acknowledged that it's far too late to prevent climate change it's clearly happening uh and manifesting in all sorts of different ways as are readily evident if you're watching or paying attention but whether you have to respond to what's happening with gloom and doom or in some other way is sort of up to you. It's natural enough to feel despair and grief and rage uh, over what's happening. But as uh, as my friend Paul Hawken put it, uh, you can decide that everything is happening to you or you can ever decide that everything is happening for you. You right. can choose either point of view. Right. And um, many have opined that um, at least pointed out the possibility that climate change, along with all the other calamities that happen in our lives, personal and collective, is something that's happening to wake us up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that uh, can be dismissed as so much new age dribble and it can be investigated as an interesting possibility that shifts the whole conversation. At the very least, for me personally and many people I know, uh it gives me uh, some energy and some vigor to carry on the work that I do to try to reverse this calamity that we have created and turn it back around. And uh, I prefer to do so so with joy and energy mm-hmm. and compassion rather than a sense of gloom and doom because I don't think uh, I'll ever actually accomplish very much in a, in a feeling of gloom and doom or of fight and all the martial 
imagery that we tend to use, right. fighting climate change right. and winning the battle and so on. Um, there's, a very mil- there's a very militaristic language about uh, kind of identifying an enemy um, and, yeah, waging this war on you know, global warming and, and all of that. And, and I'll tell you, as a kind of recovering journalist, uh, certainly, uh, boy, you write these stories over and over again, um, whether it's, you know, uh, global warming, habitat destruction, biodiversity collapse, the uh, everything that's going on in the oceans and you think, wow, just more information will create that action um, where I, I think it's really the language of transformation um, that creates uh, movement perhaps. And I think that's why your book caught my attention and I wanted to uh, give it a nod and, and encourage folks to come out and hear you talk when you're here in San Antonio uh, because it's really, uh, I think, is widely understood that uh, carbon sequestration uh, is is imperative uh, to reach certainly the the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, and in and in San Antonio, I'll tell you, as we work our way, we're finally getting a climate action plan uh, here. And working through that, there's a there's a breakout kind of energy and buildings group that is focused, uh, interestingly, almost entirely on energy, you know, uh, whether it's going to, how much it'll hold, how much it'll release, um, building codes, uh, eventually reaching uh, Z&E uh, code by, for new buildings in like 2040, I think. Um, but when it comes to carbon sequestration, uh, I was checking the list today, and this is on our kind of working community member uh, measures, uh, defines that as quote, plant materials, soil restoration, and all high-tech solutions. So um, building specifically isn't, hasn't found its way on our radar. Is that typical, do you think, for, uh, for, for most cities kind of uh, pursuing these sort of agendas? Yes, it is. Uh, people haven't uh, woken up too much. To the to both the challenge and the opportunity that buildings are, even the green building um, phenomenon that has ar- arisen in the last twenty years and become a bit of a odd juggernaut, um, is pretty much all about operating energy. What we call operating energy versus embodied energy, or operating mm-hmm. carbon emissions versus oper- embodied carbon emissions, meaning. Operating, meaning what it takes to run a building while you're using it, while we're sitting here uh, with our laptops and the lights on and maybe some air conditioning going and all the things that make a building, help us building, keep us comfortable. Um, The embodied carbon is what it took to get the building there in the first place. And as we unpack that and start to uh, unpack the notion of the time value of carbon, which I can explain in a minute, and I will explain in my talk. Uh, it turns out that if you're if you're building something today, um, the climate impacts of your project more or less uh, are mostly due to the embodied carbon, not the operating mm-hmm. carbon, which is the reverse of what everybody's been thinking all this time. Um, over the next twenty years, three fourths of your climate impact comes from the embodied carbon, not the operating carbon, and that really is really flipping around what everybody understood because we'd always looked at buildings from afar over their whole lifetime. And over the 60 to 100 years of the average building, a house, an office building, a school, the operating emissions, the energy it takes to run it over that period of time dwarfs the embodied energy or emissions. 
but we're not so much worried about 60 or 100 years. We're not even sure the building will still be used for right. that long. Right. Not. We're worried about the next 20 years. This is, um, you know, get to work time and take every advantage we can. And in, from that perspective, it's the embodied emissions that actually matter the most. And so a lot of what I'm doing, along with many of my wonderful colleagues and co-authors of this book, is getting the word out that embodied emissions matter and there are relatively easy ways uh, emerging by which we can do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the notion even starts to arise of not just reducing the harm we cause, but actually doing something positive and turning the built environment into a gigantic carbon sink. Right. It is after right. the largest construction of, of humankind. And if we could make our buildings out of plant matter, basically, which we're starting to do in all sorts of novel ways, uh, we could make let Mother Nature do the work of pulling the carbon out of the air and turning it into usable fibers and so on. Uh, and then make our buildings that way right well it's a simple concept excruciatingly difficult in execution sometimes but nonetheless that's already happening yeah all over the yeah. all over the world yeah and i want to ask you about that I, I i've been kind of uh it's been interesting here watching the the process of the climate planning where san antonio uh, we we own our uh, electric and gas utility, we own our water utility, and are therefore in a really unique position to make pretty – you would think we'd be able to move quickly, you know, as we see the market moving and the price on renewables, you know, collapsing and, and, and all the rest. Um, but it's been funny to watch as the – the savings or, you know, when we talk about mitigation um, side of this uh, climate plan, uh, the, you know, when it comes to turning off the coal plants, um, it's a very, it's kind of a subdued conversation compared to buildings, you know, all the energy uh, from the, the, the plants themselves on these uh, spreadsheets actually uh, materialize in buildings, right? Um, so when you talk about embodied carbon, um, you know, if we can kind of turn the valve down on uh, what's causing, you know, the buildings to kind of light up red, which is the, the coal and gas uh, emissions that, that are powering them, um, it seems like that would be the, the big footprint. Um, well, yes, but what my talk is about, my work is about, is parsing that down a bit because, yes, we're, we're running coal plants every day and natural gas power plants to keep the lights on mm-hmm. and to keep people comfortable in the intense heat or in the cold and so on. Mm-hmm. But we're also using them to run the uh, steel plants and the cement plants right. and the, the various other side. plants, mm-hmm. or the embodied side that makes makes our materials. And actually, that's where most of the action is in the near-term future, is in embodied carbon of, of buildings is almost... Well, to a very large extent, it's in the materials that we use to make them. And of those, the most of them are structural materials. That's why my background as a structural engineer mm-hmm. comes in handy. So if we can um, focus in on those on those uh, low-hanging fruit, you might say, targets, then we can uh, have a big impact on mm-hmm. embodied carbon. My right. project, I have a grant to write um, a low, a climate-friendly concrete building code. Because mm-hmm. concrete is by far the big, the most commonly right. used building material in the world, yeah. and it's the big biggest. Because yeah. mm-hmm. of the Portland cement that we use to glue sand and gravel together to make concrete. Um, 
and nobody's done that yet. It's kind of surprising to me. There's all sorts of green building codes and standards like LEED mm-hmm. and others that um, say it'd be a good idea if you didn't use so much cement, but they're really sort of vague and, and um, not compulsory, not uh, something that a building official could uh, enforce as part of a building permit. They're just good ideas and not even required to get the LEED certification. Mm-hmm. Um, we in, uh, here in the Bay Area, where there's been a lot of great progressive work on concrete in the structural engineering community and the concrete ready-mix Suppliers here have all done a lot of work and found that we can drastically reduce the carbon footprint of concrete without sacrificing quality or adding cost. Mm-hmm. And so we're now going to write a building code that will be adopted in a number of the counties around the San Francisco area, but written in a way that will be uh, in the standard language of building codes all over North America so that other people mm-hmm. can adopt I'm starting to get phone phone messages piling up. Super, people yeah. People want to borrow off of it, and so on. So, yeah, that's great news. I'm, uh, you know, our fourth and fifth largest emitter, you know, for San Antonio. These are cement batching plants, and 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 I was I was looking at them, you know, to getting a little closer uh, view, and I noticed one of them, the the one that's locally owned, Texas owned actually does have what they advertise as kind of like a a lower carbon. Uh, cement line, uh, which I had never heard of before. And so that was a new area of inquiry for me. Well, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to know what that means. It, it, uh. it, over the last few decades, Amer- the American cement industry has transitioned from so-called wet process to dry process, mm-hmm. meaning you're dealing with dry materials, not wet ones. And so it takes a lot less energy to cook them up to the temperature you need. And, mm-hmm. and that's all very good greatly improved efficiency and that was all driven by economics it was mm-hmm. cheaper to run mm-hmm. um the chinese uh have taken it another leap forward their their cement plants uh at least many of them are uh 100 more efficient than that mm-hmm. uh far better than american plants and mm-hmm. that's a good thing because the chinese make about 60 70 percent of the world's cement yeah. they the chinese uh oh what's the number i saw the chinese poured as much concrete between 2010 and 2014 as all of the USA did in the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's how fast they're moving. And for those of you listening who haven't been to China and traveled there, as I have, it's, it is mind-boggling. No matter how much expectation might get raised, it is mind-boggling what's happening in China. We're little villages. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day are cities oh, with high-rise buildings. Mega cities. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just stunning. I, I had a I had an opportunity years back uh, to interview uh, Bijoy Jain in um, architect out in in India and uh, outside Mumbai. I guess is where he practices and 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 he kind of like you uh, looks first to, to really local materials. You talked about building with um, you know straw and mushroom and and clay uh, and, and definitely that's kind of like that's where I began to encounter that. I mean, I've been in straw bale homes and, and adobe and and San Antonio itself, you know, was at a certain point, uh, uh, you know, Hakales and adobe homes. That was the, that was how we lived here uh, before, you know, the German, European wood, you know, and then we start seeing these wood structures. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity. I have to give a, a shout out to Esperanza Peace and Justice Center, which I believe in 
a couple years ago uh, brought in the first adobe uh, to uh, San Antonio, certainly uh, to the west side in, in a century. Uh, and it's really amazing to see and, and, and to walk through. Um, but I also noticed that you that, that in the book there's a chapter dedicated to to wood. Uh, and that you know that that I think the quote was wood like never before, and I'm wondering if you could you can speak speak to that. Um, yeah, uh, in the past, uh, gosh, just ten twenty years, uh, we have developed ways to work with wood uh, that we never had before: um, uh, computer aided design, computer aided manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast-setting glues and so forth. And what uh, many people are familiar now with, certainly plywood and oriented strand board, but also glue lamb beams where you take a bunch of two-by-fours or two-by-sixes and glue them together and press them, and you get a big beam mm-hmm. from a whole bunch of small pieces of wood. Well, that concept's been extended now uh, and expanded to where we have bigger, we can make bigger glue lamb beams, we can make bigger sheets of plywood, and in fact, we can make entire floor slabs out of cross-laminated timber using more or less the same principles. And so we can harvest small trees are out here in the West uh, where I live in tens of thousands of, of mm. trees are dying in the drought mm-hmm. or beetle kill, mm-hmm. but would still be harvested, have usable uh, fiber and should be harvested to reduce the fire danger. Kind of the understory uh, or. So, um, we have all sorts of ways we can use build with wood now that we didn't before. And so if you're going more than three or four or five stories high, uh, you now have another option besides steel or concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until recently, I, as a structural engineer, would tell you you can only build it with steel or with concrete. And it, it's kind of a funny distinction because no matter which one you say you choose, you're going to have a lot of steel and concrete in it. There's a lot of rebar in a concrete building and a lot of concrete in the foundation of a steel beam building and so on. But those were the only materials we thought we had. Now we can go, and the Europeans and Australians are going 10, 20, 30 stories high with all wood structures. Mm -hmm. And and, and the impact then, just within the industry itself, harvesting the wood, you're you're, you're describing kind of areas that that maybe need to be cleared, whether it's understory or forests that have been kind of ravaged by uh, the pine beetle or, or whatnot, this is still, we're able to maintain or, or grow more mature forests while increasing uh, our reliance on, on, on timber? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that it's a pretty complex situation. Sure. But the short answer, as best I can give it, is that as I set out to write this book, I knew that the, the promise of mass timber construction, as it's called, was was cool because you could then build a large building and it would be sequestering more carbon. It would be sequestering carbon mm-hmm. rather than emitting as a concrete or steel building. Concrete and steel are the two biggest emitters in construction, mm-hmm. the two of the biggest in the world, period. And to build with wood instead of concrete or steel means it's, it's an absorber, not an emitter. Okay, so the question then arises, anybody who thinks about it, is, well, what's the effect on the forest? Does that mean you can just go out and cut willy-nilly and have all wood buildings now and it won't have a bad impact on the forest well no it's not not quite so simple but i asked uh, an old buddy of mine uh, jordan grant jason grant sorry uh, to uh write a piece on 
uh, sustainable forestry. He's been an activist for sustainable forestry for decades now, and a very effective one with the uh, Forest Service Stewardship Council and with the Sierra Club and all sorts of people. His credentials are impeccable. And I asked him to write about that. What would be the impact of rapidly scaling up wood construction? And uh, he was energized by the process. He said he learned a lot. He drew in his whole network of people, all sorts of very lively email conversations ensued. And the, the gist of it is that, yes, we could do this. We're not on track to do it now. Right now, we're still not basically practicing good forestry in most parts of North America. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's possible. We mm-hmm. could do so. Mm-hmm. And, and as you describe some of the changes, I mean, speaking from your, your, you're in San Rafael, California, is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when you as you as you speak to kind of like changes that have been able to uh, been enacted out there whether it's the cement industry or, or others um you know here we are in in Texas with the, with the, we're in probably the builders lobby uh builders and realtors uh represents the most powerful lobby in the state. Um how does the work going on where you are and, and others uh, practicing uh, sustainable building and, and, and creating this new vision, how does that sneak its way way into into Texas? You, you mentioned codes that maybe go into kind of uni- universal codes. Uh, well, um, again, that's a... a, a complex and interesting uh, situation. I don't know how I could summarize it. Of course, from the perspective of a Texas builder, I might just be a crazy California hippie and dismissed at that and so on. But uh, for example, with concrete, um, the gist of making low carbon concrete is to use less Portland cement, which is where the emissions really are, Mm -hmm. and use more of other things like certain industrial byproducts that you can use to replace cement, like the ash from a coal-fired power plant or the slag that's left over from making steel. Um, there's all sorts of ways to make low-carbon concrete, which it turns out to be uh, better concrete and just by just about any measure. Even the American Concrete Institute, I was just reading one of their missive from a couple months ago, saying a pure cement concrete is a thing of the past. It's a museum piece and a bad idea, and it was mm-hmm. telling it needs to stop specifying minimum cement contents because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's a bad idea. Um, but also, just aesthetically, would you rather live in a concrete building or a wood building? Right. I mean, come on, get real. Right. <laughs> you want to look at steel or concrete or wood all yeah. day. That's, um, that's what I was going to kind of suggest is that, you know, the, the change really only comes from a, a kind of a groundswell, kind of cultural interest and demands uh, on the on the purchase side or or top down on a, on a policy side and that takes really kind of a an economic argument so there's there's two ways that i guess that this could move um here anyway and um you know a city like georgetown texas going 100 percent renewable because it just made economic sense uh do you see uh possibilities in in, in this area well for sure with buildings i mean uh, earth and building makes just a bucket of sense in a place like Texas or I was just in uh, Tucson, Arizona, another place. And even in Tucson, it's harder to make work because they don't have the diurnal temperature cycle like you do in uh, most parts of Texas. It doesn't cool down very much at night in Tucson, Mm -hmm. which is kind of to using passive uh, thermal conditioning. But uh, you don't have earthquakes 
Earthquakes really complicate things, especially when you're building with a heavy material like Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you don't have earthquakes. You have hurricanes and you have some horrible, humid heat. But um, for you, the argument is so compelling to just live in a comfortable adobe. It's mm-hmm. Very often in my profession, the architects and builders I know, uh, especially as we travel and read, uh, we see that if you look at the indigenous architecture of your area, what people were doing before the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. it may not be something that you want, but there's at least going to be elements in it that are have been honed over many, many generations of living there mm-hmm. that work. They're there because they work mm-hmm. for your climate and your your wind conditions and rainfall patterns and all of that stuff. I was just reading this sad story about how a lot of um, – a lot of those homes that Brad Pitt built in New Orleans after oh, Katrina, yeah. with absolutely the very best of intentions, of course, they're falling apart. I, 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 from the looks of it, it looks like he fell in with the architects, with the big-name architects, and they designed fancy things. And then they were built by the lowest bidder in some typically horrible construction process. And so they're rotting and falling apart and, and being demolished or at least abandoned. Wow. Um, and I, it's a shame because I'm pretty sure that Brad Pitt meant really well and tried to lend his good name and celebrity to a very decent cause. But um, And I'm afraid it's not by any means an isolated case. I, I worked in Haiti for a while and I saw the same thing. Mm-hmm. Really good intent, just just blowing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a shame. I, um and what your 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 comment, Adobe, is is is, is noted. There's um, certainly a lot more um, work being done in this area. And compressed block, you know, uh, companies popping up, and you know, it's it it's interesting. Even out in Big Bend National Park, you know, Texas is 99% whatever privately owned, but we do have a uh, an amazing national park out in the far far west uh, corner of the state. Um, and there's there's an old hakal uh, down there that um, this um, uh, fella. One thing I think that makes it unique is that he dug it dug it down into the ground, so it sticks and it's and it's mud and it's everything else. Um, but he lived there for decades. He lived to be 109. He had 40 some children, uh, not all of them while living in this in this home. But you're absolutely right. I mean they. They work, you know. We we know that. So there's a lot to be taken uh, from that and recovered. Um, but the one thing that really has always struck me uh, when I when I see or tour a straw bale or adobe home is just uh, oftentimes you see a real whimsy. You know, people take a, 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 the the building materials and make it their own and unique uh, uh, curves and, and design. Um, which makes me think of you know just just the idea of, of of biomimicry you know in in design and in architecture and where it appears and 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 I'm just wondering if you have a, a thought to you know when when we stopped being inspired by nature in these ways. Well, there's a big one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not small, but <laughs> you know it's something that you know the the creativity the the creative impulse of you know being part of the earth wanting to live in 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 that in that pulse uh i think is really important well yeah well we uh, our buildings have increasingly been isolating us from nature and that's in part just because more and more we live in cities we passed a tipping point 10 years ago right. or so mm-hmm. more than half of humanity lives in an urban area and that proportion is now increasing 
And by just about any measure, that's a good thing. It lowers people's personal ecological footprints. It provides more opportunity for women and children, mm -hmm. health care and education and opportunity. Uh, so cities are cool and should be embraced. Uh, that's why I, that's kind of what I try to focus on. Um, really artistic and creative uh Single-family homes out in the countryside with curving walls and all sorts of stuff. It's really fun, and I've seen a thousand of them, and I love it. But I'm just not that interested because it doesn't hold promise for the broader world's population. It holds promise for a relatively very small demographic. Right. And I'm interested in the poor farmer who's moving uh, to the east coast of China and has to find a home in Shanghai or Beijing or the— uh, the blacks and Latinos in every American city, mm -hmm. uh, or you name your poor worker group who can't afford a quarter acre in the country and to build their own home. Mm -hmm. um, it's, kind of, it's kind of the intersection of social justice and environmentalism, I suppose, but I'm just interested in how do we, how do we house all the people who were coming? Uh, Ed Masviev at Architecture 2030 estimates that we are going to we're going to build so much in the next few decades for the coming few billion people that basically going to double the building stock that is currently on Earth will be doubled in the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's It won't happen in San Antonio or San Francisco. It's happening in China and India, basically. Mm -hmm. yet, uh, even in the cities, though, there's a... They're not going to be, you know, lovingly crafted, curving walled adobes they're going to be multi-story apartment buildings and such mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they can't um be inspired by and use effectively the principles of natural building using local resources using human ingenuity using carbon absorbing materials and so on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's certainly all a part of kind of uh, renaturing the city and and we're seeing it here a lot of our you know drainage ditches are now living waterways again and uh, and I do see it and the work being done uh, in in buildings that reflect that as well so um, uh -huh. but I, I I just I want to plug kind of your uh, your lecture there you, there's an opportunity for folks to uh, on the 11th of October, ask you far more uh, insightful questions than probably I've brought. Um, but you'll be speaking uh, at San Antonio College, is that right? Boy, I'm, I don't remember offhand. I okay. could pull it up and look, but okay. that's right. Yes. I'm, I'm pulling up the website myself. But yes, Thursday, the, the 11th, um, AIA San Antonio, the Earth and Construction Initiative, uh, are bringing you down, and um, what um, what would you like to? What kind of areas would you like to see that conversation go in? Circle back to where we started. Mm -hmm. Climate change isn't happening to you; it's happening for you. Mm -hmm. How might that look? Is that just a, a a stone hippie fantasy from Northern California, or is that maybe a new possibility for yours and my life? And uh, I'm actually advertising the talk as the story of carbon because the more I think about it, and as I was writing this book, I was thinking, well, what carbon? You know, it's not a bad thing. It's just we've got we're increasing the amount of it in the air. It's in the it's wrong still far left under <laughs> right. the air, right? Far less than one of the air that you're breathing right now, mm -hmm. and yet it has this effect. It definitely having this effect that's not so good for us and a lot of the other creatures. Mm -hmm. But we're made out of carbon. Right. Uh, 
I'm talking with a carbon mouth and you're listening with carbon ears and so on. And um, so I call it the story of carbon because I just am trying to see it in the context of life on Earth and how we evolved and where we are now and where we might be going. Mm -hmm. And um, climate change is certainly the big thing of the moment, but it's entirely possible that um, with some sort of technological breakthrough or with artificial intelligence, which is I'm both wary of and excited about, mm-hmm. um, you know, solving climate change may turn out to be, oh, no big deal. Take us three weeks now that we've got this figured out and boom, there it is. I don't I kind of doubt that. I'm not the kind of person to just say, oh, technology is going to fix everything. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that there's a whole lot of um, surprises in store that we just can't possibly anticipate from our current point in time. Right. So I'm both gravely concerned about the state of the world and profoundly excited. What a time to be alive. Mm-hmm. What a time mm-hmm. to be alive. Oh my God. It's just kind of, a, it's just sour and unfortunate, the, the, the political schism of the country right now, because I don't think the average Donald Trump supporter is all that different than me, who is not one. If we could sit down together in a room and all, all of that, um, we'd still have our differences, but we still love our children and we still like to eat good food and have a good time and so on and so forth. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. But why, why so much hatred and anger? I'm not quite sure what the deal is, but I do see beautiful things happening that you don't read about in the newspaper that don't make the headlines because they're not headliney. Right. Right. Uh, fear and terror and scary make headlines and people doing good work in the community, people, Turning a drainage canal into a park mm-hmm. doesn't make the news too much. Mm-hmm. Um, people organizing to, you know, support undernourished children in the schools. All these little things, these tens of thousands of little things that people take on mm-hmm. are so beautiful. And we just don't hear about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And sometimes, uh, you know, it takes uh, a shift like we're seeing right now to kind of like push people into action and, and to spark creativity and spark in engagement and commitment um, to to community and, and thinking of community beyond the, the human one. So, um, yeah, and they're, they're great conversations we have. A lot of people out there doing good work and, and yours as well. I wanted to recognize that in a small way. And uh, Bruce King, thank you very much for speaking with Deceleration. My pleasure. Thank you. Deceleration is a joint effort of uh, myself and my wonderful partner, Marisol Cortez. And uh, we blog, write uh, every once in a while at deceleration.news and every once in a while throughout one of these podcasts. But we'll be trying to do uh, a little bit more as San Antonio uh, pushes through with his climate plan. Uh, A great opportunity for community dialogue. See you next time.